I am not a handyman. I know you chuckle because I've stated the obvious. It's not a sensitive subject for me, okay? Um, so you can laugh at my lack of being able to work with my hands and build things and put things together. It is not one of my gifts. I, I see Josh Pate down here, um, Tyler sitting over here, uh, my brother-in-law was just up here singing. Um, if you want to make you mad about how God gives gifts and talents to people, Adam can play the guitar, he can play the piano, he can sing, and he can just about fix anything. Um, and yet, here I stand. <laughs> it's not a sensitive subject. It used to be. I used to want to be a guy that could build things. Now I don't care. I either call on one of these guys that I just mentioned to help me do it, or I just do the wisest thing and say, Jess, why don't you take care of it, babe? <laughs> when I used to try to be a handyman, my biggest nemesis was furniture that came in a box. <laughs> Putting furniture together that came in a box... That idea comes from the deepest, darkest pits of hell. I'd start to put it together, sometimes trying to prove something to myself by not using the instructions, David. Or thinking, well, these instructions are probably wrong. You know, I mean, they, they're too vague or they give me information that I think isn't right. And so I would begin building this piece of furniture and I would end up putting all the parts where they didn't go and sometimes I would get finished and I would look back at the box and there'd be a few pieces left and I'd say well that's a problem this stuff is supposed to go over here with this thing but I don't know where this goes I don't know what parts these are and I don't know how they help this thing how do they fit why didn't I notice these pieces before I finished the last screw? My attitude would then change very quickly. And as Jessica could attest, my frustration level would begin rising and I would get mad and furious at myself mainly. Confusion would set in. Make me mad. Now, I say all that to say this, when I come to the verses we're going to look at today, I kind of feel that way. I, I look, I mean, I, everything that we've done up to this point kind of makes sense, right? Suffering, submission, and, and who we are in Christ. And I, I see the piece that we've already put together in this Church in the Wild series, and I look at it and I say, okay, that all makes sense. And then I look at these verses we're going to deal with today, and I say, where do these go? Like, how do these verses fit with what we've been doing already? I get a little confused how this fits into the whole when everything else has been put together pretty easily. I'm convinced that Brother James planned this out to give me this difficult passage today on purpose. Just kidding. You may feel that way when you read this text in just a moment. You may think, what in the world 
is this all about? I hope this morning to help us see a little bit where this text goes, what it is that Peter is trying to get across. It is one of the most confusing texts in all of the New Testament. I'll admit that. It is one of the hardest texts to deal with. But I do believe it, in fact, fits with the theme of 1 Peter. It may just take a little bit more work to understand it. As we've already seen, Peter has been discussing how Christians are to deal with suffering. Suffering that comes a lot of times in unjust situations, even persecutions. Peter has been very aware that if Rome keeps going the way that Rome keeps going, it is not going to be long before legal government persecution of the church becomes rampant all over the nation. So these words that we're going to look at today are designed to help believers understand the victory that the church has over all worldly powers in Christ because of his victory in his death, resurrection, and exaltation. Let me say that again because this is where we're headed today. This text that we're about to read is designed by Peter to help the church understand the victory they have in Christ even in suffering, because of his victory in his death, resurrection, and exaltation. That Jesus has won victory over the spiritual authorities that lie behind any persecution that the church may face. So let's read 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. We've already put some of it up in our video, but I, I want to read it word for word and then look at these parts and see how these parts fit with what we've already built. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. The first thing I want to deal with is the victory of the cross. This is the first part that's kind of still sitting in the box that we want to take and we want to put it with the whole of what we've been looking at. We have been very adamant around here at Calvary Hill as we preach in our preaching and teaching ministry to make sure that you understand that the death of Jesus was a victory and not a defeat. I've said this, I've used this as an illustration before, but every time around Easter time we hear something like this, Friday is here. But Sunday is coming as if Friday was a defeat for Jesus and Sunday made him win. You you understand what we call the Friday before Easter? Good Friday. Why do we call it Good Friday? Because we know now on this side of Christ's exaltation and resurrection, we know that the death of Jesus was victory. He won when he died. There's a reason why Satan tried to convince him through Peter 
not to go to his death. Satan knew if Jesus dies, we lose. So the death of Jesus was victory over sin, death, the world, and the devil. When Jesus died, he won. When he suffered the death on the cross, the ultimate suffering, he won. Now, New Testament writers describe this in a lot of different ways. They use words and language to describe the victory of Jesus' death in a lot of different ways. And Peter's going to use it uh, in a very specific way in just a minute. But I want you to see that what the Bible teaches is not just through the resurrection, not just through the exaltation, but through the death he won. You, you do realize that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a vindication of God the Father that Jesus had in fact won. It was God saying, oh wait, y'all thought Jesus lost when he died? Uh, he's back. It was God the Father vindicating the life and ministry and work and death of Jesus Christ. Remember in verse 17 that Brother James ended last week? He says that we should suffer for doing good if it be God's will, not for doing evil. Now he gives us the great example of that, right? If, if Peter says, listen, I'm encouraging you, church, suffer for doing good, not for doing evil, if it be the Lord's will. And now let me give you the greatest example of the person who suffered for doing good, not evil, at the will of God. It's Jesus. Okay? So he's giving us this greatest example the world watched as Jesus died, the one who had done no evil but only done good. They watched him suffer on the cross, and they thought it was a defeat. So much for suffering for doing good, guess what it gets you? Death. But in reality, Peter is saying that when Jesus died, when his flesh was put to death, once and for all by sin, verse 18, the righteous for the unrighteous, what happens? He brings us to God. How can that be a defeat? When Jesus Christ died on the cross, once for all time, the righteous for the unrighteous, the world watched it and said, we just defeated Jesus. And they had no clue that what was really going on is when Jesus breathed his last breath, he brought you to God. That is a victory, church, not a defeat. So I want you to see this. His suffering for doing good at the will of God brought victory, not defeat. Okay, that statement that I just made is really important as we move forward. The death of Jesus, the suffering he endured for doing good, verse 17, at the hands of God was victory. The veil was torn. Sinners have become saints. Sinners have become priests in the kingdom of God. We now enter into the Holy of Holies. We enter into the very presence of God. Why? Because he won when he died. So that's the first part. Okay? The next part that seems... 
That one, this last one, that, that first one we did, it seemed to fit pretty well. We're like, all right, that fits pretty well. We're good. We're okay. This next part is very oddly shaped. You're going to pick it up, and it's going to have a weird shape to it, and you're going to be like, how does that go in there? Why, why is Peter even bringing this thing up? It says that Jesus went to proclaim to spirits in prison. A few questions here. Where did Jesus go? That's the first question. Where did he go? There are so many different views by theologians when it comes to this question. Some think he went to Hades, which was the place of the dead, the, the place that the Old Testament saints and unbelievers went. There were two parts to it, right? You had Abraham's bosom and you had suffering. Some think he went there. Some think he went to the bottomless pit where he had cast demons into. Remember when Jesus is about to cast the demons out of legion and uh, our legion out of the, the demon-possessed man in the, in the cemetery? And they said, please don't cast us to the pit, throw us in the pigs instead. Um, there's an idea that when Jesus cast out demons or he bound any spiritual powers during his earthly ministry, that they all went to the bottomless pit. And some think that Jesus went to proclaim into this bottomless pit. Some think it just simply means he went into the spiritual realm. There are a lot more thoughts on where Jesus went. Okay, so let's leave that question there for a minute. Let's go to the next question. The next question is, who were these spirits in prison? So he goes to this place. He goes somewhere to this place and he proclaims to these spirits in prison. Who are these spirits in prison? Now, some think that it is unsaved people who are these spirits in prison that are in Hades. Some say it is the demons who are in the bottomless pit. Some say it is the spiritual beings in the spiritual realm. So these first two questions, where did he go and who did he proclaim to? Tough. Really tough. Mainly because we don't get a lot of context and explanation. If we were first century Christians with a, a long history of understanding Jewish text, even non-biblical Jewish texts, I think maybe we could understand it a little bit better, but it would, I think it'd still be very difficult for us. And so I don't want us to get into too much of the minutia. I want us to understand a few things that I think we can get from those two questions. Here's a couple things that I think we need to know. There is not enough evidence to be dogmatic as to where Jesus went. Okay, if you find somebody who's like, I know where he went, I ain't, I ain't budging for no, well, that's foolishness, right? We don't have enough evidence for anybody to be dogmatic on where Jesus went. But I think we can pretty confidently say, and almost all theologians agree on this, that it was some kind of unseen spiritual realm. Okay, that I think everybody can agree on. Jesus went to some unseen spiritual realm. I don't know if it was Hades. I don't know if it was the bottomless pit. I don't know if he just was stepped into the spiritual realm and talked to all the demons and Satan. I don't exactly know. But I do believe that, that with most, most theologians and interpreters of this text, that Jesus did go into un, some kind of unseen spiritual realm. As to who the spirits are. Once again, we do not have enough context for you to be so dogmatic that you refuse to budge. But 
we are pretty confident that these spirits are rebels against God. These spirits have tried to prevent the rule of God in one way or another and prevent the king of the kingdom of God, both in the past and in the present when Jesus was there. So here's two, th- two takeaways that I want you to you read this text. Don't get bogged down on trying to figure out all of it. Take this away. He went to some spiritual realm and he proclaimed to some kind of spiritual rebels in the past and all leading up to the time of Jesus. You with me there? That much makes sense, okay? Now we come to this question of proclaim, right? So he went to this unseen spiritual realm. He, he comes to these spiritual rebels in this unseen spiritual realm, and he proclaims something. Now, the word proclaim here is often translated in the New Testament, herald. It is not the word for preaching the gospel to evangelize. Are you with me? So Jesus didn't go into this unseen spiritual realm to evangelize or try to convert anybody to his side. That's not what he was doing. This was a proclamation or a herald. If you you think about how this word was used in ancient times, what would happen is if a king would go off to battle and win a war, a herald would be sent ahead of the king into the city to proclaim that our king has won and he's coming back. So Jesus now becomes the herald of his own victory. Jesus, after his death on the cross, after his victory on the cross, steps into an unseen spiritual realm and he declares his victory over all of these rebellious spirits to his kingdom. This is powerful. All of these spirits, these spiritual powers who have attempted to prevent his rule, who have attempted to prevent the kingdom of God on the earth. You think about Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? They set counsel together to set themselves against God and his anointed. But God sits in the heavens And he laughs, for he has appointed his king on Zion. Jesus steps into this spiritual realm after his victory, and he looks at all these spirits who have rebelled against him, and he says, you have lost, and I have won. What you have tried to prevent from the beginning of time will never come to pass. I'm bringing my people to God. Now, if we get bogged down too much on trying to figure out exactly where he went and exactly who he was talking to, and we try to get too detailed in this, I think we can miss the main point. Got me? Let's not miss the main point here. Jesus wins on the cross. He goes into a spiritual realm and proclaims that victory to rebel spirits. This is all about victory. Then we move 
to another piece of the text. We've got to try to figure out how this odd thing fits. Because it seems strange as well. For some reason, Noah's Ark comes into frame here. And it says that in Noah's day, when some, by the way, when some of these spiritual rebels existed, that might explain why the earth was the way it was, is because these spiritual rebels in the unseen realm were impacting the world and causing the intent of every man's heart to be continuously evil always. And God sends the flood. We find out from this text, not the first time, but we find out here, that in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few... That is, eight persons were brought safely out of the water. And Peter says, baptism corresponds to this. It's interesting, if you make a list, if you just kind of take verse 320 and verse 321, what you have is a few. And then in verse 21, you have you. Verse 20, you have were saved. Verse 21, baptism now saves you. Verse 20, through water. Verse 21, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here's what Peter is doing. He is using Noah's ark and the flood and being spared from God's wrath and being saved from God's wrath. He uses that as typology, as a picture that points forward to something even greater. You with me there? He's using that story to point forward to something other. It's, it's like a shadow or a picture that points to the reality in Jesus. But there is a big question that arises when you read this text. Peter just says, baptism now, baptism that now saves you. I think we get the first part. Okay, yes, I understand the, the ark and, and the, the waters and the flood and God saving people, how that corresponds to baptism. Okay, I, I get that. I get how it's a picture. But wait a minute. Peter just says that baptism saves us. And that causes confusion. It actually has led to whole Christian uh, denominations believing that you have to be baptized in water to be saved. They believe in what we call baptismal regeneration, that you actually do not become a new person until you go in the water. Is Peter saying that we are saved by grace through faith plus baptism in water? Is that what he's saying here? No, that's not what he's saying at all. Now, Peter may have known that people would ask that question because he's going to immediately qualify it. He's going to immediately say, now, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Before you think you've got to go through water to get saved, let me say a couple things here. Okay? Here are two qualifications to this statement. Number one, he says, not putting off the filth of the body. That word body is literally flesh. Not putting off the filth of the body. So guess what that tells us right off the bat? That he doesn't mean that baptism washes away your sin. He says baptism now saves you not in the washing away of your sin. That's what he means when he says the filth of the flesh. Water doesn't wash that away. So there's the first qualification. The second qualification is, he says, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. Do you know that word appeal 
I think, a, I think there's a better translation for it. I think the word here could be translated pledge. Okay? The Greek word can be translated pledge. So now think of it this way. Baptism now saves you, not by washing away your sin, but it is a pledge to God for a good conscience. Baptism, among other things, is a pledge. It is a pledge to God that we are going to live rightly, that we are going to walk in newness of life, that we are going to live in such a way that we can have a good conscience. Now, now think about it. Is th does that not go with everything Peter's been saying? Peter just said in what Brother James preached last week, if you're going to suffer, guess what? Suffer for doing good. Suffer because you live rightly. Suffer because you're honoring God. And then he says, here, baptism is actually a pledge that we make, among other things, but it is a pledge that we make to God that we're going to do that very thing. We're going to make a pledge to God before everybody in our church that we are going to walk in, in a new life. We're going to walk rightly. That we are going to live in such a way that if we suffer, it is going to be because we do good. Following in whose footsteps? Jesus. You know that's what we're doing, right? We're identifying with Christ when we get baptized. Here's your old life. You're standing up. You die to yourself and you come out new. To do what? To walk in this new life. So Peter is not saying, listen, here's how it relates. It relates because water saves you. Water doesn't save us. But water is a pledge that we make. It's a visual symbol. It is a visual pledge that we make when we go in that water. And when we come up out of that water, we are saying to everyone in this church, I have just now pledged to God before you as my witness that I'm going to walk rightly before God so that I can have a good, clear conscience. So that even when I suffer, I suffer with a good, clear conscience, knowing that I'm not suffering for some evil that I did, but I'm suffering for the good that I have done. Following in the footsteps of Jesus. So right now we got three pieces. Jesus, his death was a victory. Okay, got it. Fits with everything we've been talking about. Jesus proclaims this victory in the spiritual realm. Got it. Makes sense. He's proclaiming this victory. We pledge our lives to walk the way Jesus walked so that we can experience the victory in the way that we live our lives. Got it. That makes sense. Now we got one more piece here. And this is not confusing. This is, makes me just want to flip tables over and run around. Verse 22. Here's how he ends. Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So in case you think that the word victory that is in every single one of my points, in case you think that I'm, I'm making up this idea of victory here, he ends his thought by saying, Jesus all spiritual powers are subject to him now. Through his death, through his death, all spiritual powers have been subjected to Jesus. 
Now, what does this tell us? All angels, all authorities, all powers have been put under the feet of Jesus. What does that tell us? What does that tell the church? At least in part, it tells us this. Suffering that the church faces from the rulers and the powers of this world, we know are backed up by spiritual powers, correct? We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, church. We wrestle against the principalities, against the powers of darkness, the cosmic powers of darkness. That's what we wrestle with. So when the church of Jesus Christ suffers persecution at the hand of any human being or government or, or worldly power, we know that, it is that, that those powers or people are being backed up by sinister evil forces in the spiritual realm who are all under the feet of Jesus. They're all under the feet of Jesus. All of those powers have been defeated and conquered. So, when Jesus suffered and conquered those powers, and now is, has been, uh, he's ascended and is sitting at the right hand of the Father. You know that's the place of honor and power, right? By saying that, Peter's saying, there is no one over Jesus. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father. So all these spiritual powers are under Him. All the nations are under Him. All the governments are under Him. Everything is under His feet. And He got all that by dying. He won that by dying, by suffering for doing good. So, church... When you suffer for doing good, how should you view that suffering? As a defeat? No, as a victory. As a victory. This difficult text seems to be saying that we as believers who suffer for doing good receive victory for that suffering, not defeat. In fact, the Bible is very clear. Do you know who will, who will receive the greatest reward in heaven? Those who have been martyred for their faith. The people today, today, church, who will die for their faith will die in victory. Why? Because Jesus won. And we win because He won. So let's take these four parts that we've kept in the box here and thought, how do these fit? I think they fit very well, actually. We've been talking about who we are in Christ, the suffering that we're going to face, and all the encouragement that Peter gives for the suffering that we're going to face and that the first, the early centuries uh, of the church dealt with. Peter says, listen, church, Jesus is the great ex greatest example of someone who suffered. And he didn't suffer for doing evil. He suffered for doing good. And his suffering that led to his death was a victory over all the spiritual powers. In fact, it was such a victory that he stepped into the spiritual realm and proclaimed it to all of them. You lose. 
I've won. And then Peter says, and church, when we go into the baptism waters and we, we, are, we are dunked and we come out, we are declaring that we want to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. That we want to live in the victory that Jesus has. That that proclamation of victory is going to live out practically in our lives so that we walk with Jesus rightly and we can have a clear, good conscience before God. So that if we suffer, we know it's victory. Because the one who gave us that victory is seated at the right hand of the Father and everything has been placed underneath His feet. We are victorious Because Jesus won, and we win because of him, even if it looks like to the world that we've lost. There has never been someone who has suffered for Jesus where that suffering was of ultimate loss. It's victory. And the world may not see it right away, but they will see it one day. When Jesus returns and every knee bows and every tongue confesses and we are standing with him on the new earth ruling and reigning, it will be vindication for all of our suffering. Y'all, listen. What was the vindication that Jesus won? What did I say it was? His resurrection, his resurrection, exaltation, and seated at the right hand of the Father. Correct? With me? We suffer in this world. We we struggle in this world. We we dedicate to follow after the footsteps of Jesus, and we die. Guess how how, how we're going to be vindicated? When Jesus comes back, we rise from the dead. And when we rise from the dead, it's not just that we are now in spiritual, new spiritual bodies on the new earth, we are seated. Re- Revelation says we are seated with Jesus on the throne of God, ruling and reigning on the earth. Now, there can't be any greater vindication than that. You see the parallel? Jesus dies for doing good. It's victory. The vindication, resurrection from the dead. Exaltation to the right hand of the Father. To rule and reign everything being placed under His feet. We who pledge our lives to follow after Jesus. We die, right? We suffer, we battle, we struggle in this life. When Jesus comes back, He resurrects us. He exalts us to the right hand of the Father with Him where we reign and rule over everything forever. You see how this can be a little encouraging? to the church so when you suffer suffer for doing good suffer with a clear conscience and you know inwardly one day I'll be vindicated one day when Jesus comes back I know it's a victory now one day everyone will know it's a victory we win because he won